gents. Good to see you today. It seems like it's getting darker and darker as the weeks go on. You have to be more and more of a man to get out of bed, either that or a wimp. I'm not sure which. Or an old man because you can't sleep. I'm, uh, I think it's a little bit of each for some of you. Guys, we've been uh, looking at Revelation, in case you forgot which book of the Bible we're studying. And uh, we've seen that this Revelation is an unfolding of mysteries. Things which have to be given to us by revelation. Things which we can't simply discern by looking at nature. A lot of things about God can be discerned simply by looking at His creation. In fact, this world would be a whole lot better off if everyone in it would simply affirm what nature reveals about God. Uh, States would be a lot better off. Nations would be a lot better off. Communities would be a lot better off if people would simply acknowledge the obvious. But there are some things that have to be revealed to us by special revelation, not through nature itself. And we've seen things like the Trinity, for example. Things like being saved by the grace of God alone have to be revealed. And uh, we've seen that ultimately the the glory of who Jesus Christ is and of our future with Him have to be revealed to us. And we've seen that the book of Revelation does that. It takes the things that are given to us in all the Scriptures, old and new, and this last book of the Bible gives us this amazing literary video whose purpose is to arrest our imaginations or to inspire our imaginations, to arrest our lives so that we're picked up out of the doldrums. The other day I saw a description of some, some people who uh, were described by the federal government employee performance evaluations. And here are some of the descriptions that were in those federal government evaluations. He works well when under constant supervision and cornered like a rat in a trap. This young lady has delusions of adequacy. He sets low personal standards and then consistently fails to achieve them. Here's another one. This employee is depriving a village somewhere of its idiot. (laughs) This employee should go far, and the sooner he starts, the better. I would like to go hunting with him sometime. Another evaluation said, donated his brain to science before he was done using it. If he were any more stupid, he'd have to be watered twice a week. (laughs) If you stand close enough to him, you can hear the ocean. Lastly, this evaluation said, it's hard to believe he beat out one million other sperm. Now, I don't know if any of those evaluations were about any of you guys, but if so, you guys need to be arrested. Somebody needs to be stopped. Somebody needs to be given imagination, re-inspired. And isn't it true, if you just go to your workplace today, most of the people there really need to be inspired. Uh, Most need something very deep and powerful to happen in their lives. And it happens in the church, too. I don't know if you saw this in the commercial appeal uh, earlier this week, uh, this is from this report from Jerusalem, Holy Sepulchre Church. Greek Orthodox and Franciscan priests got into a fist fight Monday at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Christianity's holiest shrine, after arguing over whether a door in the basilica should be closed during a procession. Dozens of people, including several Israeli police officers, were hurt in the brawl at the shrine 
built over the spot where tradition says Jesus was crucified and buried. Somebody needs to be arrested. Folks, sometimes you can be in the work of the church and things just get completely out of control. And sometimes your life is out of control. It's either in the doldrums or it's out of control and we need, we need something to help us. And what we see in the Bible, the answer is vision. Uh, you know, the King James Version translation of is it Psalm, uh, Proverbs uh, 29, 28, somewhere in there, says, uh, without vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. I think the NIV is, uh, uh, without revelation, people throw off constraint. So revelation and vision is the same is different interpretations of the same Hebrew word. But it's this idea of being given vision or revelation from God. It not only uh, puts constraints back in our lives, but it inspires us in our lives. That's the reason we need this book. That's the reason we need to claim it back for our functional Bibles. You've got it in your Bible. It's just that you and I don't use it very often because we don't understand the blooming thing. We need it back because we need to get, get out of the doldrums and bring clarity to our confused lives. Well, we've seen that this revelation is given to us by Jesus Christ through this man, John the Apostle. We've seen that those who read this revelation, who hear it, who believe it, who put it into practice are blessed people. How are they blessed? We saw last week with grace and peace. And that grace and peace comes from God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, who we, whom we saw last week, is highly exalted. Now John goes on in verse 9, where we're going to pick up and finish this chapter today. John goes on to show us what this vision is all about, what this revelation is all about. It's about a person. And let's pick it up there with verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. All righty.
Today, we simply say, church, meet Jesus. And we're going to see, first of all, in these first three verses, that when you're down, what you need is a vision from God. Feeling down now? Got problems? Got troubles? You're suffering? Afflictions? Got questions you don't, don't know the answer to? You got relationships that are troubled? You got some question about the direction in your life? What you ought to be doing? Where you ought to live? What job you ought to take? Whether you ought to ask the boss for a raise or not? You know what you need? You need a vision from God. And God gives us vision. And without vision, the people perish. If we have no vision, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we, if we do not have God speaking to us and showing us things about the future and about ourselves and helping us recalibrate, uh, we are people without hope. I want us to notice, first of all, that this is written, this vision is written by a fellow sufferer. Look what he calls himself. He says, I, John, your brother and companion. He is a brother. He is a companion. And he is a companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So this vision is coming to us through the life, mediated through the life of a person who's suffering just like everybody else. Uh, The seven churches were suffering because of uh, Roman oppression. We'll learn more about this later in the book of Revelation, the kind of circumstances that were facing the church. But they were all being persecuted because they were Christians. In many parts of the world today, and you've been in some of them, some of you, uh, places where people can't get into university because they're Christians. Uh, people can't uh, get good jobs because they're Christians. Some people can't get food to eat because they're Christians. Uh, some people can't live because they're Christians in parts of the world today. In fact, there are more people being persecuted uh, in this year than were persecuted in the entire first century of the church. It's going on. We don't hear about it much because we're very comfortable right where we are. But when you put your faith in Christ, you take on the same enmity that Jesus Christ took on from this world. And if he ended up on a cross, you shouldn't be too shocked if you don't do a whole lot better. That's what it cost him. And we find when you follow Jesus Christ, he says, he warns us clearly, come, follow me. He said, take up your cross, your instrument of execution, and follow me. Because he says, no one can follow him unless we deny ourselves. So we have to crucify our own selfish interests to follow Jesus Christ. You can't do it without it because you're going to face this misery. And you say, well, gee, it's a lot worse than I thought it was going to be. Well, when you look in the Bible, you find people are talking to you, like John the Apostle, uh, who understand. And John understands because he too has been marginalized. The man is over 80 years old, and he's still in exile on an island like Alcatraz uh, where he can't get back to the mainland. This little island is about four miles by eight miles, and he's, he's exiled on it. He cannot get off on the island of Patmos. He cares deeply about the churches that are in Asia, just across the Aegean, uh, that part of the sea in the bay there, uh, over in uh, western Turkey, and he can't get there because he's in exile. And he's basically saying, look, I am your brother and companion in suffering. And so your pastor, he is saying, is suffering just like you are. And when you read the Bible whether it's from the hands of the Apostle Paul, who wrote some of it from prison, for heaven's sakes, or the Apostle John, who wrote from the island of Patmos, you're hearing from people who suffered for the cause of the Word of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have great sympathy. You have people who are writing from that perspective. And so you ought to expect that it will help someone who's in that perspective. He says, I'm a martyr because he's on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, here's one who is simply giving his life over to the Lord 
uh, in a difficult circumstance. And I'd just like to take a little side road here for just a minute and talk about this John who's over 80 years of age. Would you think about this with me for a minute? Some of you, you know, there are a few of you in here who are over 80, not too many. We won't ask for a show of hands. But some of you are acting like you're 80 way before you get there. And, uh, I mean, I've known people in their 30s who started acting there, started thinking about retirement. And I just want to ask you, what can old people do? And every one of us uh, will be struggling with this at one time or another. And what you do is you look at John and you say, you know what, here's a guy over 80. He's doing something really fantastic. And I just noticed that sometimes guys will get discouraged about their lives, whether it's their age or their health or circumstances they're going through, and they just they think of themselves being put on the shelf. They're no use anymore. Look at what John was doing. First of all, he knew how to pray for the churches, and he did. And prayer is the most powerful thing we do. And you've got to be a deeply spiritually minded person to believe that. Most people use it as simply a doctrine to be stated to cover your PowerPoint presentation. So it's the first thing on your, your presentation there so everybody knows you believe in prayer. But those who really believe it are those who pray. And it's a powerful thing to do. And I want to say to all of you, if you think you have no other ministry, if you've got the ministry of prayer, you've got the most important one. Secondly, they give. And some of the people do their most strategic giving and mobilizing other people to give when they get into their senior years. Those of you who are moving into your senior years, let me just tell you, you have some of your best opportunities to mobilize resources in this community for things that are good. And furthermore, uh, while we're talking about it, if you'll think about your estate, you're going to make your biggest gift when you croak. And some of you just think, you know, you're just so terrified about croaking, you don't even think about the advantages of the rest of us they're going to experience when you're gone. <laughs> you're so obsessed about your own fears, you're not thinking strategically about what to do at your death. But you're going to make a big gift. And you're either going to give it all to your kids and probably ruin half of them, or you're going to think strategically about the kingdom. And uh, so you've got to think. Uh, God has put you in a strategic place in life. You're not put on the shelf. This is a very, very important time of life. You need not only to be giving and planning to give, uh, but you need to be encouraging your friends to do the same. Thirdly, influencing culture. Some of you guys who are, were long since retired from your uh, gainful employment, your occupation where you're making a salary or whatever on a regular basis, you've influenced culture a whole lot more since then than you did when you were working 80 hours a week. Uh, and some of you have just forgotten that you've got tremendous influence with people because of your age and experience and network of friendships. You need to be thinking about your influence. And then encouraging younger men. Uh, some of you here are experts at this. I see you uh, taking young guys out to lunch, or I see you calling guys up, and I hear about your influence with younger guys. Uh, and if you don't think that you have influence, some of you who are in your 20s, let me tell you, all you have to do is go down a decade or sometimes even half a decade. If you're in your 50s, go down two decades. Go down as far as you have to go until you have influence. If, you'll just, if you're willing to go down as low as you have to go age-wise uh, until you have influence, you will have influence. If you have to go all the way down to the nursery, get in the nursery and get some influence and begin to pour your life into younger people. So just go down as far as you have to go. Some unusual people can actually influence upwards, but that's kind of rare when you're strongly influencing the people who are over you in age. Usually you're going to influence people downward or, or peers. So just be strategic about where you spend your time. You've got tremendous power to influence people if you're willing to influence the people who want to be influenced by you. And some people get so stubborn, bullheaded, 
They never have influence because they insist on influencing a certain group that doesn't want to be influenced by them. So just look at where your influence can be and use it. And it's usually encouraging younger men. Young men have to be validated by older men. They will not be effective in what they do until the older men validate them. And if the older men, and I'm talking older men, those of you who are 40 and up, if you all are holding out on downloading your power and influence and giving freedom and power to younger guys, uh, then you're, you're just simply uh, constipating the whole system, as Rocky Anthony would put it. You can write. Some of you have done a great job of writing your values out in some of your life stories so that your kids, your grandchildren, and the ones after you have something to go on about what's really important to you. If you've written a last will and testament and you haven't really put your testament in there, get your testament in there so it becomes part of your court document that's going to endure. Get your statement about what you think about Jesus Christ, about His kingdom, about the purpose of life, and what you hope for your succeeding generations. You can do that in about a paragraph. It would be very powerful for your family. Write. Write letters. Well, write email. Write whatever you want to write. But use your influence of things that you've learned to communicate with those who want to listen to you. And some people can write books and have bestsellers. Some people just write to their families because they're the only ones who will read it. That's <laughs> all right. Write where you can have influence. And then set a godly example. Some guys forget, like Solomon, that, uh, you know, hey, I've lived a great life. Shoot, I'll just sail out. Just, you know, just glide right through life, the end of life. And he... He glided and had ended up with about 900 wives and all kinds of problems and false worship and almost destroyed the kingdom. Well, he did eventually, didn't he, uh, through his sons. So remember, no matter how old you are or no matter how long you've been a Christian, keep your head in the ball game, and you've got to repent like a little child. Jesus said, unless you become like this little child and repent like a little kid, who's still learning. Unless you're living like that before the Lord, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So no matter how old you are, whether you're 18 or 80, no matter what you think you know or you actually do know, you are always a kid before the Lord. And there has to be this dependence upon Him and this desire to grow in His image. Now that's what John is doing. And that's the reason he's effective. And that's the reason when he gets up in his upper years and gets exiled, for heaven's sakes, uh, cut off from the church. He refuses to be useless. And he refuses to go to a pity party. He refuses to say, well, my day is over. It's the younger guys now. He takes his place. And every single one of you have to take your place. If you've got breath and life, you've got a place. And God has an intention for you. There's a mission for your life. You may have discovered it or you may not have, but there is one that God intends for you. We have to open up our hearts and say, Lord, with whatever limited gifts I have, and I want to be grateful for whatever you've given me. But whatever role I've got, whatever people I know, Lord, help me to be your man in that place. And for you younger guys, as long as you're taking the place where you are, the Lord will lead you to whatever the next place is. And sometimes, you know, when you're in your 20s, early 30s, you can become obsessed about your career and whether you have as much influence as the next guy who seems to get all these lucky breaks and you don't get any of them. And I always just say to you guys, look, if you'll just do what's right in front of you, and don't worry about the career ladder. That really is a worldly concept anyway. If you are just simply concerning yourself with honoring God right where you are and setting a godly example and serving the people around you, guess what? You're going to be in the top 10% of the class anyway, even from a secular point of view. Now, the last 10%, I'm told, is a dogfight. That's fine. But 
90% of it is getting to work on time, serving people, and being honest and staying until the work is done. That's 90% of it. And that's about 100% of what the Bible is calling you to do, is simply to give yourself to the role in life that the Lord by His providence has given you. Would you concern yourself with that? You say, I'm not sure I can. There are too many temptations and too many distractions and too many of my friends who are talking about this at the cocktail party and that at the cocktail party. And this, How am I supposed to really focus on that? I'm glad you asked because that leads us to the book of Revelation. That's the reason for the book of Revelation, to kind of get us recalibrated and back on track and doing the things that are important. Because we see, secondly, under this idea of, uh, of needing a vision from God, that it is written by divine command. The voice says to John, write on a scroll what you see. John is commanded by the Lord to give it to us. So it comes through one who understands us, who certainly had a very difficult life, but who had a blessed life, and it comes straight from the Lord. We've already talked about that. We'll pass on. And then it's written for real people. It's written to the seven churches. Now, why seven? We've already seen there are more than seven churches. It is simply to pick this number seven. You will see in Revelation 7 is a very common number that's used to speak of completion or perfection, or in this instance, to speak of the very essence of the church. So the letters are going to, as it were, the whole church. And that, that number seven represents that. Now, there are other churches in Asia at this time. For example, you have a letter in your Bible called Colossians. A letter written to Colossae would have seemed to be appropriate, but Colossae is not listed. Why? Because it wasn't an exhaustive list. It's a, a suggestive list, and, a, and a, the number seven suggests completeness. So this book is for real people in real churches. And, of course, we're going to see as we interpret Revelation, as we get into chapter 4 particularly, that we must be sure to interpret it in a way that would have been uh, encouraging to John's parishioners. And if something could not have been understood in the first century, it could not possibly have been the proper interpretation of Revelation because John's a pastor. He's writing to people who are in desperate straits and who need to be encouraged. And he's writing so that they can understand it. It's written for real people just like us and just like them. Now, secondly, uh, we'll see that this vision that God gives us is a vision of His Son. So, if you ask the question, what vision would God give me? Really to inspire me. Oh, I know. He'll give me a vision of Sandy Wilson, very successful, writing bestseller books, uh, the church quadrupling in size, and everybody really saying Sandy's a wonderful... Boy, that's the vision I have. I'm going after that. No, that's right from the devil. Here's the vision. It's not about you at all. It's about Jesus Christ. Gentlemen, this is a vision you need. It's not a vision of yourself and your greatness. It's a vision of His greatness. You think about what would God do to reveal the deepest, most wonderful mysteries that would lift people out of their miseries what kind of vision would He give them? The vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, His own Son. Now we're going to see first of all in this vision, as we read in verse 12, He is among seven golden lampstands. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, first of all, those of you who are here for Exodus study, you remember, might remember something about a lampstand, about a lamp. It's in the holy place, uh, in the tabernacle. It's the light of God. And here you have something that seems to be recalling God's very presence among His people and His seven lampstands. Instead of seven uh, arms on the lamp, it's seven separate lampstands. 
And we know from Revelation 1.20 that we read, the last verse, that these lampstands represent the churches. Isn't this a marvelous picture? That the church is, these are the lights that light up uh, the world. And Jesus, in fact, said of us, we are the light of the world. The church is what gives light to a dark place. You can't function without light. And spiritual light is coming through the churches. So when you're worshiping in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you've either done it already or you're getting ready to. (laughs) When you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a light for Him. And it's it's an exciting concept that the very light that Jesus shines into this world is, is shining through me, through you. And that's the way He pictures the church. Now, notice that Jesus Christ is among the seven golden lampstands, and this raises a very, very important issue. Sometimes people will say, you know, I like, I like your Jesus. I, I just don't like His friends. <laughs> you know, I, I respect Jesus Christ. I just don't like a whole lot of the church. How many, time, how many of you have ever had anybody say something like that to you? Would you just raise your hand? Yeah, yeah, I, we, we've heard it a lot. And so people say, you know, I, I, I can worship Jesus. I just don't want to go over there with you guys. Uh, you know, a bunch of fruitcakes. Uh, and most people, most people, in fact, almost all people in this country who don't go to church, okay? And that would involve some of us here in this room. Uh, almost everyone in this church or in this country who does not go to church has been hurt by the church or angered or irritated by the church. It's almost universal. So if you're here and you don't go to church, I can almost guarantee they've either ticked you off or hurt you or your mother or somebody, and there's a a negative feeling about the church that's almost universal in the unchurched population in our country. And so this is very, very common. In fact, uh, you know, if you've been in the church for a while, you realize, you know, it it does have a bunch of turkeys in it, you know, and... uh, and the church does bite you every once in a while. And that's the reason, for example, if you're a leader in the church, an ordained leader, an elder, deacon, or whatever you are, Sunday school teacher, you're not supposed to do that right after you get converted. You're supposed to have a little experience. Because when you get into leadership, people are going to carp at you and snap at you. And if you're not mature, you'll think, what, now what in the heck is that all about? Hey, I'm, I'm doing good here. Why are they turning on me? And you realize this is the role that you take. You know, it's a role of love. Look at Moses in the wilderness, gentlemen. Look at Jesus on the cross. It was his own disciples who fled from him. So you realize that you have to have a certain level of maturity before you exercise leadership in the church. But what does it mean for Jesus Christ then to be among the lampstands? It means this. First of all, if you want to meet Jesus Christ and really experience him, walk with him, you're going to have to go to the lampstands because <laughs> that's where he hangs out. You get it? Jesus Christ is walking among the lampstands. So if you think you can have an experience of Jesus in some Gnostic, spiritualized, uh, incorporeal manner by just meditating in the garden, uh, you're, you're missing it. Jesus spends His time among His broken people. He's walking among the lampstands. Secondly, it shows you how much Jesus Christ loves His church. Those lampstands run out of oil. They snuff themselves out. They, we've already seen it. Get into fistfights with each other in the Holy Sepulchre Church. Uh, they do all kinds of wild and crazy things, but Jesus still walks among the lampstands. And if you've had troubles in your church, uh, let me just say, you know, Jesus still loves His church. I know it's amazing. Uh, 
it's amazing that He put, has put up with us for so long. And I know that after 40 years in the wilderness, uh, you know, Moses wondered how it could possibly be that God would still be with him. But remember Moses said, remember our study in Exodus? He said, Lord, if you're not going with us, I'm not going either. Because it's, it's hopeless. This church is so rotten, so stinky, has so many skunks in it. If you're not here, we're, we're goners. And so we have God's guarantee that He's among the churches. So the first thing you notice, if you're going to get a vision of Jesus Christ, He's, he's among the lampstands. He's with us. He's where His people are. And if you want to know Him, sorry, you're going to have to get to know Him among His people. You have to come on in. And yes, get ready for some more hurt. You won't stay in the church for, for a day without somebody saying something catty to you. For example, if you hadn't been to church for a while, here would be one of the first comments. Where in the hell have you been? <laughs> I've heard that so many times I want to throw up. You know, here's poor little pastor over in the corner, you know, looking, oh, isn't it wonderful that Harry has come back to church? And then, and then Joe goes up to him and whacks him, you know, with a comment like that. And you think, oh, gosh. And you wonder, why does anybody come to church? Why does anybody even try? So you just got to be ready. That's just the way it is. We're, we're a bunch of knuckleheads going through the wilderness together. But we have one thing. We have one claim to fame. we got Jesus. <laughs> That's all we've got. Now, we've got Him. We really don't need anything else. <laughs> and it's a shame that we're not more like Him. But we've got Him. So if you want to know Him, come on. He's, he's with us. <laughs> so... That's, that's what you're being shown in this, this first vision. Now, we're going to move to verses 13 through 15, and here we are going to get the vision of Him personally and what He's like. And before we do that, I want you to think with me for just a moment. If, if you needed a vision of Jesus Christ that was really going to get you moving again in your spiritual life and your family life, your marriage and all these obligations you've got, and really get you charged up about it again, uh, what picture of Jesus would be helpful to you? You know, Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep, or Jesus caring for the little kids, or Jesus dying on the cross, or whatever. Well, it reminds me of a Bible study that I was leading as a young pastor over 20 years ago, and it was during missions conference at our little church, and in my Bible study that night, I actually had two pastors and their wives, and I had three missionaries, three missionary couples. So it was about a group of ten of us, all shall we say, professional church workers. And so at the beginning of our time, I simply said, Would you, let's all just close our eyes for a minute. I want you to imagine Jesus Christ, I said to them. And I said, uh, now just imagine him, just however you see Jesus. So we all just kind of sat there, you know, and just thinking, who's Jesus? You know, so then I said, okay, let's open our eyes and let's go around the room and tell us what vision you had. One One person said, well, I... You know, I saw him sitting on the rock with the little kids, you know, one on, some on the right hand, some on the left hand. And somebody said, well, you know, I saw him changing water into wine. And somebody said, I, I saw him, uh, you know, with a man being lifted down from the roof, uh, you know, who is the quadriplegic and so on. And somebody said, well, I saw him, uh, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, you know, with his arms like this and praying. Well, we realized after we'd all gone around and told what our vision of Jesus was, first of all, they all came out of that big fat family Bible. <laughs> the pictures in it. It's amazing. The power of pictures. But the second thing we realized was they were all pre ascension visions of Jesus Christ. 
that when we thought about Jesus, every single one of us, now mine happened to be Jesus on the road to Emmaus, okay? So mine was after the resurrection at least. But still it was when he was here on the earth. That is how almost everybody thinks of Jesus. Those are the stories that we get in Sunday school and church week after week. You're told about, you know, we go back to the Gospels and that's the Jesus that we think of. Now, nobody in my group of professional Christians <laughs> suggested that when they thought of Jesus, the sweetest image that ever came to their mind was Revelation chapter 1. Not one person. And yet, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, he said, we no longer think of Jesus after the flesh. And yet, we all do. So I want to challenge you in terms of who you think Jesus really is. What's the functional Jesus that's inspiring you day after day? Now certainly, we all should be inspired by His life of humility. And we call it humiliation. Jesus humiliated Himself when He took on flesh and came and lived among us. But gentlemen, let me remind you of something very important. Uh, If you want to know what He looks like right now and what He's going to look like when you see Him again, uh, it is going to be as one who is exalted as He is in Revelation chapter 1. So, this is the vision that inspires. This is the Jesus that we're looking at. It's Jesus, the Son of Man. Now, this Son of Man idea, if you look at it in, in verse 13, He says, And among the lampstands was someone like a Son of Man. Now, in uh, the history of New Testament scholarship, folks used to say about this, that this Son of Man figure was simply describing Jesus' humanity. And some of you know, this is the most common description that Jesus uses of Himself. He's called a lot of things in the Bible, but what the, the one He uses most distinctively by, uh, by Himself, of Himself, is Son of Man. And early scholarship about a hundred years ago would say, now this is just showing that Jesus never really made claims to deity. He most commonly referred to himself as the Son of Man, that he was kind of a good man. Later on, with the further studies, even by liberal scholars, I have to say, they understood that was not what Jesus was saying at all. What Jesus was saying is found in Daniel chapter 7, and if, if you've done the daily Bible readings, you may, you may remember this chapter that you read the other day. And if you look in Daniel 7, it's in your Old Testament. It's about, oh, open your Bible up about halfway there. You'll find it. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a vision. And he says in verse 13 of chapter 7, Daniel 7:13, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So as we have seen, John is going to get his images out of the Old Testament, and he begins right here. When he says, Son of Man, he's talking about Daniel chapter 7. And his audience would have known exactly what he was talking about. Because Daniel, as you know, from 7 all the way through the end of Daniel, is very apocalyptic. It has a lot of weird beats in it and things like we see in Revelation. And so uh, John is referring to that and saying, what I saw was what Daniel described in chapter 7. I saw what he was 
predicting. I saw what he was describing. And this is the description of Jesus Christ. So when you think about Jesus Christ, don't think just about Jesus meek and mild. He was meek, but he was not mild. But think of Jesus exalted in Revelation chapter 1. Now let's look at the seven descriptions of Jesus that you're going to get in verses 13 through 15. Seven items. First of all, there's a robe to his feet. Secondly, a golden sash. And this describes his office. That golden sash was just like a priest wore. If you remember in Exodus, uh, when we were studying the priestly vestments, Jesus is being described as one with priestly vestments. So he's one who comes between God and us, who mediates from God to us, revealing the Father to us, and he takes our prayers and mediates them back to the Father. So Jesus is presented, first of all, in his dignity as a priest. That's the first thing that you notice in verse 13. He was like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. Gentlemen, Jesus is presented to you as the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. But by Him you can come to the Father. He's a priest. He's a mediator. If you want to know God, if you want to have a relationship with the Father, if you want to know that He is your Father, that He's preparing a place for you, you can arrive in heaven safely, Jesus is your answer. And once you know He's your answer and that He is mediating between you and God, it's going to make a difference on your day to day. I promise you. If you really know that down to the bottom of your feet, it's going to make a difference in how you live your life, how you think about yourself, and how you get fired up about what the Lord has given you to do. Secondly, we look at His head and His hair. And you'll see that it describes them in verse 14. His head and His hair were white like wool, as white as snow. So what John seems to be saying to us, this Son of Man is pure, white like snow. Isaiah speaks of our sins being scarlet, yet they shall become as white as snow, so that we are made pure by the sacrifices offered for us, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ eminently, and we are made pure by that. Jesus is already pure. So when you see Jesus Christ, you see Him as one who presents Himself as the mediator between God and men, you see him as one who is absolutely pure, no imperfections whatsoever, unlike us. Fifthly, you see his eyes, and they are like blazing fire, verse 14. So what John is saying is not only is he pure, but he's the purifier. When you look in the eyes of Jesus Christ, you'll find they're looking right back at you. And they're looking right through your eyes, right into your heart. It's amazing to me when Peter denied the Lord. Uh, I believe this is in Luke's account, Luke's Gospel. When Peter denied the Lord, you remember that after the cock crowed, he looked at Jesus and Jesus was staring right at him. And the word is really that prolonged look. And I, you know, I know what it's like to be caught red-handed, but I, I know I've never felt anything quite like that. What Peter must have felt like with the Lord just looking right into his heart. But gentlemen, what that look was was not a condemning look. That was a saving look from the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, He looks into your heart and He sees all the junk and all the crap. He knows all that you've been doing, all you've been thinking, all you've said. He knows your false ambitions and your pride and your arrogance. He knows all of it. But with a compassion that most of us would find it hard to imagine, He looks into your heart and seeing all that junk, He loves you. 
His eyes are like blazing fire. And He sees to the real you and He loves you. It's an amazing thing. He's pure and He's the purifier. Then, look at His feet. His feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. What's the significance of this? Do you remember the great image that Nebuchadnezzar had interpreted for him in his dream? And it had, you know, a head and then silver of chest or whatever and legs of bronze. And then it had feet of clay. And then the big rock comes along and smashes the figure. No matter whether he's got a platinum head, gold head, silver chest, no matter what precious jewels were on this image, no matter what kind of metals were used, if he has clay feet, when the big rock comes, it destroys that image. Now, do you notice the difference here? Jesus does not have clay feet. What is John saying? He's saying, I saw a great figure indeed, but a figure that could not be destroyed by any other kingdom. And, oh, thank you, Ron. Okay, I believe this will work. Indeed. Thank you. That does give me a little more freedom. I was beginning to feel bound. Good. So, you know that, that what, what John is saying is this son of man that I saw is in contrast to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, that it cannot be destroyed by the other nations. All the nations of this world are built on a faulty face. They're built on ambition. And we're going to hear a lot of it tonight, aren't we? We're going to hear a lot of it tonight. We're, everybody's getting all geared up for this, this debate tonight. saying, oh boy, man, this, this is, let me tell you, this is really going to be a substantial debate. You can expect to get a lot of new information that you've never heard over the past 48 years. Uh, you, know, you can expect some really brilliant parlaying back and forth. Boy, I just can't wait to hear the repartee from each of these men. It's going to be boring. Get ready for it. It's really about two political parties trying to take over. And any time in this secular world you had the kingdom being built, it's always built on human ambition. And that's always a faulty frame. And let me tell you, they're all going to smash and come to an end, including our country. Because they're all built, no matter how brilliant, no matter how godly, some of our founders were, and that some of them were very godly. No matter. We live in a state of, of a civil state and it's just doomed to at least die out with a whimper and maybe come probably America, knowing how, how great she is in her power right now, will come down with a mighty crash. But they're all going to come down, but not this one. He has feet like bronze in a furnace. It's glowing. It's powerful. What's bronze made up of, if I understand correctly? I remember my metallurgy. It's made up of iron and copper. Iron is very strong, but you notice it rusts. Copper doesn't rust, but it's not very strong. You put iron and copper together and you get a strong metal that doesn't rust. This is the reason that John is saying, I see his feet made of bronze. This is a permanent kingdom and no one shall smash it. And gentlemen, we saw last time how each of us tends to define ourselves by the currencies of power in our own experience, whether it's money or prestige and popularity or your good looks or the job you have or the car you drive or the positions you hold. 
Everybody tends to define himself as a man based on these currencies of human power. And they're all fruitless in the end. And what John is saying, my vision is of this Son of Man who is ultimate power with a capital P. All authority, all power in heaven and earth, said Jesus, is given to me. So if you want to center your life, what John is saying is you center it on where all power is. We, we claim to know about power. We claim to be influenced by power. Well, if you really want to know about power, let me tell you where it is. It's in Jesus Christ. So you get your life centered on Him, and then everything flows out by implication on your relationship with the source of all power, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the problem is that to most of the people in this world, Jesus doesn't seem to be very powerful. I happen to know He is. A lot of you know He is. But to this world, He doesn't seem to be very powerful. All you have to do is remember the life of the disciples. They heard Jesus talking about the Son of Man, and they knew what He was talking about. Here's one talking like a king and living like a slave. How many of you saw The Passion of Christ, the, the movie last spring? A good number of you. I have to tell you that, uh, I mean, there are many impressions left on me, and we could talk about that movie, but one of the things I remember distinctly is in one of those moments when Jesus was before Pilate. He seemed like a nut to me. And I had, the thought ran through, through my mind, you know, if I had been there, I would have thought the guy was a nut, that he was manic depressive or something. He was, just, he was having delusions of grandeur. And why did I, do I say that? Because Jesus looked miserable. Jesus looked like the weakest, most despised, human being on the face of the earth and he was claiming to be a king. Yeah, right. That was the problem for the disciples. But they, they, including John, saw him resurrected, saw him ascending into heaven. Now their problem was to keep the vision. They saw that indeed he was great and that his greatness was veiled in his life of suffering and humiliation. He was really great. Now what they had to realize is that he not only was great, but he was with them. He was walking through the golden lampstands. And this great Lord Jesus Christ is still controlling history and is going to bring it to a conclusion. That's what they needed to know in the midst of their doldrums and the midst of their problems and their suffering. And John is reminding them, this same Jesus Christ that you saw resurrected and ascending into heaven is still there on the throne, still ruling the nations, and he's coming back. His feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, he cannot be smashed. And then you hear His voice. And it's a very commanding voice. And the Jesus that you see in the vision of John is a talking Jesus. A speaking Jesus. In fact, you have this unusual phrase when He says in verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking. See a voice? Beg your pardon? You hear voices. No, what John is saying, this voice you see. <laughs> because... This is a talking Jesus. It, he's one who gives the Word, and we obey. He gives a Word to the wind and the waves. They obey. He gives Word to the dead, and they obey. Whatever He speaks comes into being, and you see that His voice is like rushing waters. You know, when uh, Paul Ham won the uh, Olympics uh, on the, uh, in, the, uh, in gymnastics, I was waiting for the interview, and I was expecting some guy to get up and talk about it. And he has a voice like this. And you say, good night. I can't believe that. He's the Olympic champion. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't fit. 
You know this guy with muscles bulging all over him, you know, he can hang upside down by one hand, his leg out like that. And he's got a voice like this that just doesn't fit. Let me tell you, Jesus doesn't have a voice like that. It's like rushing waters. It's just deep, powerful, commanding presence. John said when I, when I met him, uh, it was something else. We'll see in just a moment. And then you see his possessions. Not only his character in the way he's described, but his possessions. First of all, in his right hand, he has seven stars. The significance of that gentleman is that there were seven planets known in that day. And they were sometimes called the seven stars. Jesus got them right there. Furthermore, those seven stars, the seven planets, were said to control history. If they line up a certain way, it means this. If they line up another way, it means that. Some of you know exactly what I mean because you idiots, you're reading your astrology thing every morning out of commercial appeal. Why do you do that? Well, let me tell you what mine said this morning. It said, hang on to your pocketbook. If you're going to spend money, spend it on your house or on really good friends. It's going to be, and then the conclusion is it's only a three-star day, in case you know what that means. It's going to be an average day. And I want to say literally to hell with that. Why should I? This is junk. It's absolute junk. Uh, magic that has no power whatsoever. And yet, why do you think the commercial appeal gives a fourth of a page to this thing every day? Because you read it. Jesus is holding seven stars. He's got the stars under his control. The planets do not control history. Jesus controls the planets and history. He's got everything in his hand. If you want to find out your future, drop the astrology and read this book. <laughs> so that's what Jesus is saying. That's what John is saying. You want to find out about history, about the meaning of life, the clue to your day, uh, you, read, you read the mystery that's revealed for you in this book. In the right hand are seven stars. And, of course, those seven stars, we're told later, are the messengers or the angels to the churches. So it has a double meaning there. In the mouth, a double-edged sword. This sword cuts. It's an offensive weapon. And it's probably like the short sword that the Romans used coming out of the very mouth of Jesus Christ. Why? Because His very word cuts and divides. It divides the very division of spirit and soul, says the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4. It divides between the marrow of the bone and the joints. It divides what cannot be divided by anything else. The Word of God will divide it and describe it. And the Word of God will look into your heart. One of the deep impressions I had when I began reading the Word of God was, this book knows me. And uh, I remember in, in the previous church that I served, in Lookout Mountain, uh, the man who came before me had an associate pastor. His name was Roger. And there were some 35-year-old guys in the church that kind of came to church every quarter, whether they needed to or not, and uh, were as converted as a doorknob, but they'd grown up in the church. And so Roger just loved them. He said, hey, can I come hang out with you guys? And they said, yeah, we've got a world issues class that meets every month. Why don't you just come, bring your own bottle, and, and uh, literally just come on and we'll just talk about world issues, which is what they did every quarter, uh, every month. So Roger went to the thing, and there were four of them. He made the fifth person. So by the fifth month, it was Roger's turn to pick the issue that they were going to discuss the next month. Because what they did was they said, we're going to talk about this issue next month. You all can read about it, and then we'll debate it over our beer and wine and booze and everything else. So 
it was Roger's turn to choose. And he said, okay, Roger, your turn to pick the issue. And Roger said, well, why don't we all just agree we're going to read the Bible every day until next month and then come back and tell what we found out. (laughs) He had to hang out with these turkeys for four months to finally get them to read the Bible, but it worked. So all these guys read the Bible. I'm just going to give you the bottom line. Eventually, one of them headed the the second largest Christian foundation in the world, giving more money to missions than anybody else in the world. Another one became president of a Christian college, Covenant College. Another one of them headed up one of the key teaching ministries in this country, was chairman of the board. Another one gave himself to inner city ministries in Chattanooga and became one of the, the leaders of mobilizing resources to renew the one thing, read the Word of God. One thing. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. Give yourself to it, and you'll find that God will discover for you your passion, your interest, your place in life. It's all in the Word. And then his face was brilliant. He brings light. His very face brings light. Now, John says uh, that the vision of Christ is life-giving. Life, first of all, to our bodies. We think we're going to die, but because He lives, we also live. John says, I fell down as though dead. Gentlemen, this Toronto blessing of several years ago where people were having these big revival sessions and everybody just gathered around and laughed, it was called laughing ministry. And so you just go to church and everybody starts laughing. <laughs> let's just let's get it going here. <laughs> Everybody's like, come on. You're not very good. I guess you can't be revived. Well, literally, they would have these laughing times. And that was meant to display spiritual revival. This is what I see. I don't see John laughing. When he comes face to face with Jesus Christ as he is, he falls down as though dead because of the greatness, the unending, spectacular greatness and brilliance and radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think you'll find when people really have been revived by the presence of Jesus Christ, they've been absolutely overwhelmed with the privilege of being in His presence and they thought they were going to die. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm alive. I was raised from the dead. So shall you. And Jesus Christ tells John that he has eternal life. Gentlemen, one of the things you need in your vision about life is that you've got eternal life. It's not going to end in your three score and ten. That's not going to be the end of it if you're in Christ. When you have that vision that there is nothing that can take you out permanently, then guess what? You're not afraid of anything. It may take somebody else out. They may be afraid of it, but it can't take you out because you keep coming back. You keep resurrecting. You've got eternal life. This is exactly what John and the people in these seven churches needed to know. And it gives life to our perspective. You tell them what you've seen, what is now, what will take place later. That's called a Christian world and life view. Seeing Christ as Lord, seeing our situation as it is, and seeing where it's headed. That gives us a Christian perspective on life. Desperately needed today. Maybe we can pick up on it next week. And then even life to our interpretations. In verse 20, Jesus describes who the seven stars are, what the seven lampstands are. He interprets the Bible for us. Guess what? Jesus is still doing that. If you want to know the interpretation of your Bible, the, the bottom line key is keep looking to Jesus Christ. It's about a person. The Bible ends up in this book with a vision of Jesus Christ. And then in this verse, we have Jesus Christ Himself looking back at the book and telling us what it means. So the book leads to Christ, and Christ leads us back to the book. It's not just an intellectual experience. You can't just go to university class and get it. You have to enter into life with Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. And when you do, He becomes His own interpreter of the sacred Scriptures. 
It's a very personal and intimate relationship. So, gentlemen, you're in the doldrums. You're suffering. You're under affliction. You're not sure what your purpose in life is. You've got to have one thing, a vision from God. What's that vision? It's the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it do for you? It gives you life. And you walk out of here with life forevermore. Let's pray. Father, please inspire us anew with the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.